Well, good morning, those of you here in the room. So good to have you with us here. And those of you online joining us uh, from all over, so glad that you're with us. It feels like this weekend we've turned a corner. Last night we, we pushed our clocks forward, which will keep it light until, boy, what, 7.45 tonight. Yesterday, the mercury hit 60. Wow. For those of you in Florida, that's a big deal for us, okay? Just, just saying. And this week, uh, we reached the vernal equinox again. It just it feels like we've made it through kind of the darkest part of the winter, and it's a new day. I'm so glad that you're here uh, with us today as we continue on in this series, Meals with Jesus. On the opening of this series, I talked about how in Israel, their annual calendar was marked by these uh, different feasts, these festivals, these, these nationwide meals that they would have. And each of these meals was very, a, a meal with a meaning is very significant because it pointed back to something in their history and it was celebrated the goodness and the grace of God. So when we get to Jesus, we see these meals that, that, are, that are transformative, that are impactful. And we recognize that on a micro level, but kingdom wise on a really even greater universal level, that these meals that Jesus has are not just celebrating the goodness and grace of God in the past, but his goodness and grace that has come to bear right here, right now in the kingdom of God. And so we've been looking at these different meals that he has and the kind of uh, impact that they've had. Today, the one that we're going to look at, if you were raised in church, is probably one of the most familiar Bible stories in all of Scripture, which is really interesting. This is if you were raised in church. The interesting is because the odds are stacked against it that it would have uh, such wide, uh, you know, familiarity. Because not all four gospel writers included. In fact, only one gospel writer talks about this event. There's other events that two, three, or even all four of the gospel writers, only one does this one. And it's really quite a short little, uh, you know, episode. There's only 10 verses. But what's amazing is not only how widespread the familiarity is with this story, but with some of the details that normally you would overlook in other stories. For instance, many of you will be very aware of the character that Jesus interacts with and know his name very well, even though his name is unique, his name is unusual, and his name is rare in Scripture and in our world. In fact, it only happens three times in the entirety of Scripture. Not only that, but you know some of the physiolog physiological characteristics of this individual and seemingly insignificant details. You're even aware of the dendrological taxonomic classification of one certain deciduous tree in this story. And you have no idea how long I worked to get that sentence down this week. Thank you. Thank you very much. You know these details, and you know the details of what Jesus said to this individual. And what's even more amazing is while this story encompasses 10 verses, most of what you know and all of these details fall within four verses in all of Scripture, just four verses. And the reason it's so familiar for many of us is because of a 30-second song we were taught as children in Sunday school. It's a politically incorrect song. It will probably be canceled eventually. But the man's name is Zacchaeus, and he was, here's where it's politically incorrect. They're singing it here in the room, okay. <laughs> he was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a, and here's this, this, this deciduous tree, a sycamore tree for the Lord he wants to see. So we're going to look at this very, very familiar story. For some reason, I've never heard the story. Great, glad you're here today. Really glad you're here. And some of you who know not only the song, but the scripture, or throughout our time today, some of you are, will be astute enough to say, wait a second, we're talking about meals with Jesus, and never once 
in this episode, and never once in these 10 verses, is there a meal that's explicitly mentioned. And while I agree with you, and I'll explain this, there are some implicit conclusions that we can draw that there actually was a meal, and I think very safe to say there was a meal, and I'll get to that point in this story uh, eventually. Now, if you want to follow along with this story, if you don't want to just sing the song in your head, but you actually want to follow Scripture, it's in Luke chapter 19. We'll get there eventually. But I want to give you a little bit of uh, historic, biblical, and geographic context and backstory for what we're going to experience today. This event that we're going to look at happens about one and a half weeks before Jesus goes to the cross. It's, he's, he knows that he's going to be crucified. He knows that his ministry, his three-year public ministry, is drawing to an end. And that is when this happens. In fact, he tries to be as abundantly clear with his disciples as he can be, because sometimes they're a little slow on the uptake. In fact, we read in Luke chapter 18 where Jesus says this to his disciples, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem. Hold on to that little phrase because that's got an interesting little side note too. We are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man, that's his favorite title for himself, the Messianic title out of Daniel 7, everything written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. They missed it. I don't know how you can be more clear. But it's just like, okay, maybe, and let's give them some grace. Maybe it's because he's talking in the third person. He's talking about the son of man, and maybe he's talking about someone else and, and all this. So whatever. They, they miss it. But they're going up to Jerusalem. All right, let me give you a little bit of a geographical backdrop on this. Let's go with a map. Here's a, a map of, of Israel, and these are different areas in Israel. As we've talked about, the vast majority of Jesus' ministry was spent in Capernaum and in the Galilee region up here, way up to the north, up by the Sea of Galilee. Jerusalem is clear down here. We read in Luke chapter 17 that Jesus and his disciples were going along the border of Galilee and Samaria. Because most often, Jews would not go through Samaria. However, in John chapter 4, Jesus went through Samaria, the woman at the well, but that's a different story. So they're going around, and they're heading up to Jerusalem, which seems interesting because usually when you're going south, you're going down. You, know, you go down south, we're heading up north. They're going up to Jerusalem, and they come around to this area of Jericho. This is where the thing takes place, the events happen that we're going to look at today in Jericho. A couple things about Jericho. Jericho is one of, if not the oldest, continuously inhabited city on the face of the planet. Whether it's Damascus or Jericho, it's one of those two. And Jericho, and I was just there just over a year ago, a community now of just over 20,000 people. But people have lived in Jericho for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands, and I'm running out of stage here, and thousands of years. They've lived there forever. Old Testament context. When Joshua brings the people into the promised land, you'll remember they have to, to go through this, like the gate into the promised land is Jericho. You'll remember that maybe if, if you're uh, familiar with Old Testament history or Bible stories. And they marched around it for seven days, seven times on the seventh day, and then the walls. And Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. We can sing that song. And it was also the home of a very famous woman named Rahab. Unfortunately, she gets a little uh, moniker tagged on with her, Rahab the... The prostitute. Yeah, but, but she's also the hero of the story, so that's a cool thing. So that's Jericho. One other detail about Jericho 
is Jericho is the lowest inhabited city on the face of the planet. It's a part of the, the, uh, the Jordan Rift Valley, this whole area. The Dead Sea is the lowest point on earth. And Jericho is 850 feet below sea level. So when Jesus says, we're going up to Jerusalem, while it's south, Jerusalem is at 2,500 feet above sea level. So they go south and literally go up to Jerusalem. So when he tells the story, this so many details that I don't need to be included, but I, hey, it's Sunday. So when he tells the story about the, uh, the uh, Good Samaritan, it says he went down to Jericho from Jerusalem. Okay, so it's an elevation thing. All that backdrop, Jesus is going to have this encounter in Jericho. Right before we get to our story, he and his disciples and maybe some of his followers are walking into Jericho, and there's a man on the side of the road who is blind. He's a poor man. He's a beggar. He sits there probably every single day, probably has for years, maybe his entire life. And he hears all this commotion. And he says, what's going on? He can't see, but he can hear something's happening. And people say, this, this man, Jesus, is coming through. And he starts screaming out, you know, son of David, which is a messianic title. Son of David, have mercy. And they're like, you know, be quiet. His name, by the way, is Bartimaeus. And a little side note that only geeks like, like Pastor Kip would appreciate in all of the miracles where Jesus heals people, only twice do we know who their names are, Lazarus and Bartimaeus. That's a whole lot of the discussion that, that you can have with Kip. All right. So his name's Bartimaeus. And they're saying, Bart, be quiet. Bart, be quiet. He's like, no, no. And he keeps screaming. And Jesus stops and says, yeah, what do you want me to do for you? It's kind of obvious. But Jesus asked him. And he says, I want to see. I want to see. And Jesus heals him. Now, we just kind of read on. Can you imagine? Bartimaeus has been blind now. All of a sudden he can see and this guy just healed him. He's probably freaking out. It says the whole community, all the, the whole crowd, they're praising God. And he's running around. This guy, I, can, I mean, you know me. I've been begging and I can see it. And he doesn't just go, so I better go find a job now. No, he is going crazy. Look at this. Sky, that's blue. Oh, it's so blue. Wow. And birds, oh, look at those things. That's oh, yellow. It's so Yellow. I mean, all this stuff, he's just amazed because now he is, he's able to see. That's the context. You ready to get into the story? Luke chapter 19, it says this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. It's not just Jesus walking by himself. He's got his 12 disciples. He's probably got other followers. Now he's got Bartimaeus, who is like the, you know, the leader of the band. I mean, he's out front saying, hey, everybody, look at this guy. Look at me. Look at this. I'm looking at you. Look at the whole thing. And there's all these people, and they're, they're praising God. All this commotion. There's a lot of buzz, a lot of frenetic activity, a lot of things happening in this small little town. And then we get to our character. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. In this verse, we kind of get some information. You know, normally it's that name, rank, and serial number. This is name, occupation, and economic status. His name is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a unique name. There are other names that are repeated in Scripture. Like, if you talk about Joseph, there are four prominent different Josephs listed in Scripture. Zacharias, there's like three or four Zacharias. There's multiple Simons, multiple Johns. Mary, there are so many Marys in the Bible, you get confused of which one's which. There's only one Zacchaeus. And as I mentioned, it's only mentioned three times in the Bible. Here's the irony, that the name Zacchaeus translated means pure, innocent, 
blameless. The irony is that Zacchaeus was anything but pure, innocent, and blameless. In fact, he was guilty. He was seen as a traitor. He was a cheat. He was a thief. He was dishonest. He broke the law. He's not pure. He's not innocent. He's not blameless because he's a tax collector. Now, we talked about this, what, four or five weeks ago when we looked at Matthew. This tax collector, the whole idea is that, is that they would, like, really work for the Romans against their own people, and they would get wealthy doing this. But he is not only a tax collector. It says he is a chief tax collector. This is the only time you find this in Scripture. He's a chief tax collector, which you can kind of just put together. He has people that work underneath him. The way it was, you could bid for an area to collect taxes, and maybe he bid for a bunch of areas, got it, and then let them out to other tax collectors. And so he's got people working for him, and he takes a chunk of their, their earnings. All of this, he is a chief tax collector, people working under him, and because of that, he has become wealthy. Not just upper middle class, he is upper class. He's like the true one percenters. In fact, outside of Herod's palace, which there was a Herod's winter palace in, in, in Jericho, I'm guessing Zacchaeus had the nicest dwelling in all of Jericho. He's a very, very wealthy man. And because of that, he gets wealthy on the backs of all of his countrymen who are locals there. He is like hated by all. Everyone hates him, hated by all but one. One person, the one that he'll encounter that will change his life. Now, Luke, who is a doctor, very much pays attention to detail, gives us one more small detail about this man. Did I mention it's a small detail? A tiny detail about this man. Verse 3. He wanted, Zacchaeus, wanted to see who Jesus was, all the buzz and all the commotion, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. Now Luke doesn't just throw these kind of details in just for fun. There's a reason he's, he mentions the stature of this man. He's a short man. As some of you know, pun intended, this is low-hanging fruit for short jokes. And some of you, if you've been around for a while, may be wondering if I'm going to say anything about Pastor Brian, which hurts me because I'm a bigger man than that. And I have made comments about Brian's height at times. And I've had people ask, would you do that if Brian was right there with you? Because it's not fair. As long as he's in Skagit, you can talk about him. But what if Brian was right there with you? Would you still say those things? And the truth is, why, yes, yes, I would. <laughs> now, if on screen right now you're watching in Skagit or on your TV or computer, and you think, well, Brian doesn't look that short. Listen, the TV adds six inches to his height. Okay. <laughs> now, love Brian, but I just want to say, because I knew that I was preaching the Zacchaeus, and I've known this for months, and I knew there was ample opportunity and I decided a long time ago, I am not going to make any jokes at all about Pastor Brian and his height. Not going to even go there today. 
Not even going to talk about it, although there's so much opportunity. In fact, I thought about having Brian team teach us with me, but we were short on time. And so I decided not to. And so I just want you to know, Brian, I am not going to make fun of any short people, including you, today. All right, Kirby, help me out with this. And, and don't bump his head. Oh, never mind. You don't have to worry about that. Okay, thank you. All right, now, all jokes aside, let's talk about Zacchaeus. Because my guess is his entire life, he's been receiving those jokes. And they quit being funny a long time ago. And maybe, not only is it some kidding and ribbing and joking, but maybe he's always the last one picked, but the first one picked on. And maybe he's been ridiculed. And maybe he's been bullied because it's an easy target to bully this guy. And maybe with all that, he has a bit of a chip on his shoulder. He's got a little bit of bitterness. He's got a little resentment. He's got a little anger. He's a little bit upset. And maybe, just maybe, because of the life that he has lived with these people, that that is why he chose to be a tax collector. Because none of them really have cared about him at all. Why should he care about them? And besides, this is a way he can get back at them. This is a way he can bring about revenge. This is a way he can say, see, it's all fun and games till I'm in control, huh? And besides, Rome doesn't care. They don't care how tall you are. They don't care who you are. They don't care if you're the Jolly Green Giant or Tom Thumb. They just want their taxes. And so maybe he does this almost more out of spite and vengeance for what they've done to him his entire life. And maybe he's driven because he never excelled in some other areas. But in this area, he's good. And he begins to climb the ladder of success to where he becomes the one with the title, the one with authority, the one with power, the one with status. And here he is. It says he's a short man, but... He's a chief tax collector. And it says that he's a short man because of the crowd. Now, now we could say, well, yeah, the, the crowd's all there, and he, he can't see over them. And that's it. But, but maybe, maybe it's because he avoids the crowd in every circumstance, always, because he doesn't like them, and they don't like him. Maybe he avoids the crowds because anytime he's in a crowd, they see this Danny DeVito guy running around, and they throw a little elbows. They're like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't see you there. And then they walk behind him, and they, they trip him. Oh, I'm sorry, enjoy your fall. Oh, it wasn't that far, was it? No. And maybe he always gets kind of pushed aside and elbowed and tripped and kicked, and people just kind of do that because they don't like him. Maybe that's why he avoids the crowd. But anyway, verse 4, it says this. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree, there's your deciduous tree, to see him since Jesus was coming that way. A little side note, and this is for another sermon. It, he ran ahead and he climbed a tree. In that culture, a dignified adult man would never run because it would mean with their robes and their tunic, they would have to bear and expose their legs, which would be completely undignified and would never climb a tree. That was for children. That was child's play. This man, a little side note. This one's for free. Aren't you glad you're here for the free ones? This man does what only children do because he wants to see Jesus. Interesting that Jesus says, unless you become like a little child, 
you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, that's another sermon. You can do that one on your own. That's just a cool one. But he goes and he climbs this tree. And we say, okay, yeah, he wanted to be able to look down and see Jesus. Yes, no doubt. But here's a what if. What if he climbs the tree not just to see Jesus, but he climbs the tree to hide because he doesn't want to be around the crowd. He doesn't really want to inter inter uh, interact with Jesus. But he wants to hide because every time he's around the crowd, they just pick on him. They make fun of him. They belittle him. They, they're mean to him. So he goes up into the tree to hide. And maybe it's to see. It's a vantage point. But it's also it's, he's hiding up there and no one can see. And that he just goes up in the tree and he waits. So verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus. My first thought is, how does he know his name? The Sunday school answer is this. He knows his name because he is Jesus, right. Like last week we saw, he knew what Simon was thinking. But here's a couple other options. Yes, he knew his name because he's Jesus. But what if, imagine this, what if Zacchaeus is in the tree because he's hiding and no one does see him? Because Jesus is coming and Bartimaeus is making a big scene and everyone's focused on him and they're all walking. They don't even see the tree. They don't even think about it. And they're walking and Jesus stops at that spot. And Zacchaeus is like, keep him. Keep moving. And then he looks up. And Zacchaeus is like, I'm busted. And then everybody else looks up. And then people start going, Zacchaeus. Oh, Zacchaeus. Come on, Zacchaeus. What are you doing, Zacchaeus? And maybe that's how Jesus knew his name. Or here's another option. What if on the way into Jericho, one of Jesus' followers, one of his disciples, one of his 12, named Matthew, formerly Levi, who was a tax collector, what if he says, hey, Jesus, we're going into Jericho. There's this guy I used to work for. I would say you can't miss him, but you can miss him. This guy I used to work for, he was like my boss. He's like a, a chief tax collector. And I don't know if we're going to see him, but his name is Zacchaeus. And he so needs to hear about the kingdom of God. He so needs, his whole world is, he's filled with bitterness and anger, chip on his shoulder. He's all about money and wealth and trying to succeed in his identity is in his status. He so needs you. And maybe Jesus knows his name because Matthew says, I want to tell you about a guy I know there. So he comes and he says, Zacchaeus, what I find so beautiful is that he doesn't say, Hey, chief tax collector, because he recognizes this is an individual person with a name. And his name has a message. Maybe Jesus says, Zacchaeus, you know what your name means? Do you know what your true identity is? You know who I see you as? You know who you, pure, blameless, innocent. That can be you. Jesus sees the potential in him and says, Zacchaeus. And then he gives him some instructions. Come down immediately. Sounds like my mom. Come down immediately. I must stay at your house. I must. It's this divine imperative. I must stay in your house. I, I must go. And as he says this, as he, as he talks to, to Zacchaeus, I again wonder, why Zacchaeus? Because there, there's a crowd of people from Jericho. There's other people who have homes. Is it because Zacchaeus is the 1% and has the nicer home? I would say yes and no. 
not because of his wealth and that 1%, but because Jesus reminds us that the shepherd will leave the 99 to go after the 1%, the one individual. He says, Zacchaeus, I must go to your house. His response is this. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Of course, you can imagine for Zacchaeus, people hate him. Everyone in the town hates him. People avoid him. They ignore him. They're mean to him. This guy recognizes him, calls him by name, wants him to come and, 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 and have time together, to actually wants to be with him. Dr. Paul Brand, who a, a was a world-renowned um, orthopedic surgeon, made incredible breakthroughs on, especially with the hands and tendons and muscles, and especially in leprosy patients. Grew up in India as a, as a missionary's ch- uh, kid, and then went back to India, a lot of time in Carville, Louisiana. Actually spent his uh, last years at the University of Washington. Dr. Paul Brand said that people need to have what he calls a Zacchaeus moment. A Zacchaeus moment. And this is what he says about a Zacchaeus moment. A moment when they recognize that God himself has looked down at them, has seen all their blemishes, and still wants to live in their home being identified as their guest. You know what? Some of you have sung the story of Zacchaeus your whole life and never recognized. It's our story. It's your story. It's my story. It's the story of humanity. Because of our sin, we hide. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? They're hiding. We hide. We try to disguise it. We try to find our identity and all this stuff. And Jesus stops and he calls us by name, knowing all of our junk. But he sees who we are, our true identity, who we can be in him. And he says, and I want, I must do life together with you. What a beautiful, beautiful picture of the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus is excited. Zacchaeus is excited. Everybody's excited, right? Verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter. That's not celebrate. Mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Sounds a lot like what we heard from the Pharisees last week. Gone to be a guest of the sinner. One of the uh, scholars who comments on this story says that uh, the word stay in verse 5, the word welcome in verse 6, and and the word um, uh, guest in verse 7 all imply that this is not just an afternoon stopover for some lemonade and ginger snaps. That it's room and board. That he's going to be there overnight, at least one night, maybe more. That's where I would say, while it is not explicitly uh, you know, mentioned, there is no doubt that there was a meal with Jesus, and I think this is where it happens. Because no one in that culture would invite someone to stay in their home without offering a meal. So they're at a meal, and maybe they're reclined around the table like we saw last week. Again, Zacchaeus has the means to do this, in the house to do this. So they're reclined, and you just wonder, this is all what if. As they're around the table, what do they do? What do they talk about? What, what's going on there? I mean, they're getting to know each other, telling stories. Could it be Matthew and Zacchaeus are swapping tax collector stories? They have that in common. Have you ever experienced this? Or what about this? And what if Jesus tells some parables? He's always telling parables. Just tells these stories, and people are like, oh, yeah. He asks some questions. And maybe, maybe Zacchaeus says, hey, Matthew, why, why'd you do it? Why did you leave such a lucrative career to follow this guy? I mean, you walked away from all kinds of, what would you, 
And maybe Matthew tells him his story. And maybe Matthew says, and, and he's taught me things. And, and he begins to explain about, like on the Sermon on the Mount, where, where, where Jesus said, you know, don't lay up for yourself treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. No, no, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where no moth or rust could destroy, no thief can break in and steal. Or Jesus would say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all this stuff, it'll be added to you. And, and maybe Matthew just shares his story and the things he's learned and, and how his life has significance and meaning and, and, and that he's a part of this kingdom and, it, and it's fulfilled what he always tried to fulfill with all the money and all the success that it never could. And maybe something's happening in Zacchaeus. Maybe there's some transformation. There's some change. And maybe at this meal when all this is happening, he gets to this point where he's like, it all comes together and it clicks. Verse 8 says this, but Zacchaeus stood up like, like as if they'd been reclining around a table. He stood up and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, look, Lord. Now, this is significant because up to this point, Zacchaeus has been the Lord of his own life. He's called the shots. He's made the rules. He's set the groundwork. He's done it all. It's all about him. But now something has changed. He recognizes Jesus as the Lord. And then you see this dramatic transformation, this dramatic change in his life, in his priorities, in his world. Here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, and Matthew's going, whoa, 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 Zach. <laughs> if, if you've cheated anybody, come on, Z, that's how we make our money. What do you mean if? Okay, okay, okay. If I've cheated, okay, I've done that. Anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. There's a big change that's happened here. Priorities have shifted. There's a generosity that is like not human. What has happened? And what I want you to recognize is how this happened. Did Jesus come to the spot, look up at the, and, and say, Zacchaeus, heard a lot about you. I know a lot about you. I know you've been cheating. I know you've been stealing. I know you're dishonest. I know you're materialistic. You're greedy and you're selfish and short. And I want you to change all of that, except the short part. I want you to change all of that. And if you'll do that, if you'll stop cheating people, if you'll stop being materialistic, if you'll stop being greedy, if you'll stop being dishonest, you'll stop all that, then I might go to your house. That is not the order of grace. It's not because he changes that he receives the grace of Jesus. The order of grace is this, because he receives the grace, that grace becomes the dynamic for change. That he experiences something from Jesus. And that it's not like, oh, I've got to work hard so that somehow I can earn my good graces from Jesus. No, he says, I've received something that I could never deserve. I could never earn or ever even repay. And because of that, I'm changed. Isn't that the way it works? Romans chapter 2, where it says, your kindness leads us to repentance. Not our repentance results in your kindness. It's the other way around. The grace of God is the dynamic, it's the catalyst, it's the genesis for the change. In Romans 5, while we were still sinners, we hadn't changed, Christ died for us. It's his grace that brings about this transformation in our life. We don't earn it. We're transformed by it. There's a song that we sing here, the goodness of God. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you've been so, so good. And the bridge, 
It's got this little line, your goodness is running after, it's running after me. Kind of like Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all these days. So your goodness is running after me. And then the response, with my life laid down, I surrender now, I give it, give you everything. It's as a response to that. That's what changes us. That's what transforms us. It's the grace of God. And look what Zacchaeus does. He doesn't say, okay, all right, so Jesus, you, you got me. But so what do I have to do? No, he goes beyond the minimum requirements, beyond what is just required. I mean, the Jewish people knew that there would be a 10% tithe. He says, I'm going to give 50% away. Not because of, you know, back fees and penalties and interest. No, no. He's just like, I, I'm just, it's, it's, I'm, it's not about following rules. It's about being transformed by grace. I'm going to be generous. And for those that I've cheated, there were some very specific guidelines. In Leviticus chapter 6, verse 5, and in Numbers chapter 5, verse 7, if you read those, if you cheat someone, you have to repay them with 20% interest, according to the Old Testament law. He says, I'm going to give them four times, like 400%. Why? Because he has tasted grace, and it has changed him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So in verse 9, we see this. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. It's not just salvation. It's full life transformation. Now, there's one other thing I want to point out, and then I'll try to land this plane for us and bring it home to us. Is something that if you read again in the context of Luke, there's this like side by side. So I want to talk about the contrast in the camel, if I can call that. Because Zacchaeus is a wealthy man, but he's dishonest. In essence, he's immoral. He's breaking the law. He's cheating people. He's stealing. He's a white-collar thief. But the chapter before, Jesus encounters another very wealthy man. But he's moral and very religious. If you're with us last week, again, this is, this is the Kip and I geek out on these kind of things. Last week, Jesus talked about two uh, debtors who were just alike. They both owed a moneylender, but one owed way more than the other, so they're not alike, but they both couldn't repay, so they are alike. Same kind of story. This time, there's two wealthy people. Oh, so they're alike, but one's very religious and moralistic, and one of them is very dishonest, so they're not alike, but they are exactly alike because they both desperately need the grace of Jesus Christ. So in the passage in, in Luke chapter 18, when he, what we refer to the, the rich young ruler, he says, listen, I've kept all the commandments. I've done all the laws. I, I, I'm good. And Jesus knows his heart. And it really isn't about his money. It's about his heart. It's the only time Jesus ever says this to anyone. He says, I'll tell you what you need to do. Go sell all you have and give your money to the poor and then come follow me. And he wouldn't do it. And in this familiar statement, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, what if? He is talking about his wealth, but what if that's not all he's talking about? What if he's talking about those who are rich in good deeds, in morality, in keeping of the law? because they're very self-sufficient and they feel like they can do it on their own. And this man has been able to financially buy himself out of any situation he needs to. 
and morally, he feels like he can do the same thing. And Jesus says, it is harder for, for that person to come into the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And so the people around says, so then who could ever be saved? And Jesus says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. It's impossible. You can try to be as good as you want, as moral as you want, as keeping the law as you want, as religious as you want. It's impossible on your own to get into the kingdom of God. So here's Zacchaeus, who's not religious, who's not moral, who doesn't keep the law, who's dishonest, but he recognizes grace. And I can almost see Jesus saying to his disciples, you guys watch this. The camel is going through the eye of the needle right now. Zacchaeus. All right. So let's try to land this thing. Let's try to bring it home. I know it's a familiar story to you guys, most of you. But here's what I want for us, is, is, is to recognize that whether we're like Zacchaeus, dishonest and far from God, not keeping rules and, you know, whatever, or like this rich young ruler being religious, we are both in desperate need of the grace of Jesus Christ. And it's only when we recognize that our goodness won't do it that the grace is available to us. That's the only time it will become reality. And it's not just to save us. Here's what I want us to recognize. It's living in the transforming grace of Jesus. Living in Jesus' transforming grace. Yes, it is by grace you have been saved. Yes, but that's not where it ends. It's living in that grace. It's being infused in that grace. It's having that grace penetrate every single part of our life so that we will be transformed by it. Not so that we can just say, well, then I can just sin. I can just do whatever. Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means, it says in Romans chapter 6. And Paul, who is absolutely transformed from this self-righteous, moralistic, religious, do-it-yourself guy to a man who is completely dependent on the grace of God, writes this in 1 Corinthians 15, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's a little bit of a Popeye statement, but by the grace of God, I am that I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. It's changed me. It's transformed me. This is that Dallas Willard quote that I always come back to. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. In fact, Paul would go on in the same verse saying, I worked harder than everybody, and it's God's grace within me that is transforming me. Yes, it is by grace that you have been saved. It's by grace that we live. It's by grace that we're transformed. That's why in 2 Peter it would say this, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. To grow in that grace whether you're experiencing that for the first time, you know, how his grace caused my heart to fear and how grace, my fears relieved. How precious that grace appeared the day I first believed, but to grow in grace until the day you die, to continue to grow and let it infuse your life and be transformed, not just in saving your life, but transforming your life. The, parable, the story ends with this. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost, not just for eternity, but for here and now as well. This is what I long for, for me and for us. That we would be more aware, more awed, more struck by the grace of God with each passing day. That the longer we walk with God, that the more we will just be melted 
and transformed by the grace of God and let it infuse every single area of our life to continually be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ all to the glory of God.